The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I've got 6.30. Let's go ahead and start, if we might. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, the time we have together. I thank you for the way you have revealed yourself in Scripture and that we can study uh, Scripture tonight profitably. We can feed our our hearts on Bible verses. We can, we can satisfy our souls deeply and richly. As a matter of fact, we were made to be satisfied in you. We were made to have all of our needs and our hungers and our thirsts and everything satisfied in God. And I pray that tonight that would happen. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit here tonight. I pray that my brothers and sisters and, and that I myself, that we would be here for the purpose of our own pleasure in God, that we would delight in Him and, and yearn to know Him, and that having fed on God, that we would be energized and strengthened to do the good works you've ordained for us to do. Father, we do continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti who are suffering greatly tonight. I can't even imagine what it's like to be there without the usual amenities that make it possible to live in this world. And I just pray that you would strengthen them and be a, a shield and a protector, a wall of fire around them, O Lord, and meet each of their needs, that you would show yourself very gracious in a, in a very needy time for that island. And we'd remember that there are brothers and sisters that you love no, no less than us that are suffering there, and that you would minister to each one of them, and that we would care for them as though we were going through that trial ourselves. And so be with us tonight, O Lord. Help us to be satisfied in you. Drive away idols uh, by the study of the word and that we'd realize there is nothing that satisfies compared to God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we were looking at the attributes of God and, and a study of the attributes of God is a worthy approach to uh, studying uh, you know, the, the, the doctrine of God. Attributes are descriptors of God, things that are true of God. Uh, it, it answers the question, what kind of God is he? Um, he is a such and such God, and uh, we would have no no such information except that God revealed it, and He revealed it in physical creation, but especially um, He reveals it in the Scriptures. And so we're going to have a lot of Bible verses tonight that give us a sense of God. We talked about the attributes of God uh, last time. It's just uh, descriptors or the excellencies of God, and uh, we're on page two of the outline talking about the names of God. And the names of God are just some of the ways that we can understand God, that God has given himself many names or he has described himself in many ways. And so he uses words to describe himself. This is what God has chosen to do. God will not permit uh, any physical representation of himself. There is none that can be made. Instead, what God has chosen to do is to speak words to us so that we can understand what he's like by means of, of words. And so I really believe that language is part of the image of God, that God has given us the gift of language. I just find it remarkable. I have five children, and just watching how they have learned the one language that they each have, um, you know, with very little effort. Now, I, I know that schooling, you know, we've, we've seen our kids learn to to sing, spell, read, and write. Um, we've, we've watched that happen, and that's a lot of work. But, you know, I look at Daphne, she's four years old and quite eloquent, um, maybe in some cases the most in the family. Uh, and we didn't send her to English school. Um, she didn't have to, you know, do what all of our international friends are doing in the ESL language, which is uh, just laboring to learn English. 
It's just coming. It's part of the gift of God. It's a natural course uh, that God gives to human beings to be able to speak a language in, in the normal course of things. We know that there are occasional challenges, but um, that's the gift. And I think primarily God gives it so we can know Him. I really think that's what it is, so that we can read the Bible and know who He is and what He's like. And uh, I've even heard one of my children say that, you know, that that's why um, that they want to learn to read so they can read the Bible. And that's, that's really the best reason for us to, to learn language and to learn how to read so that we can find out what kind of God He is. And so we have these names of God. The Jews listed 71 different names of God from the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know what all of them are, but you probably could find them on the Internet if you wanted to, different, uh, the different names of God. Herman Bovink uh, gives us a variety of some names that are the most common. The name Elohim, very common in the Old Testament, uh, designates God as creator and preserver of all things, says Bavink. El Shaddai uh, represents him as the mighty one who makes nat- nature subservient to grace. Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on the pronunciation of those Hebrew letters, describes him as the one whose grace and faithfulness endure forever. Uh, Jehovah or Yahweh Sabaoth, uh, the Lord of hosts really is what that means, describes him as the king in the fullness of his glory, surrounded by an organized host of angels, governing the entire universe as the omnipotent one, and in his temple receiving honor and adoration of all his creatures. So these are just different names of God. Uh, and they give us a sense of what he's like. Name also relates, I think, it's helpful for us to think of God's name in terms of his fame or reputation, that God has made a name for himself. So God doesn't just reveal himself in a designator, uh, like the Lord is a sun and a shield, etc. The Lord is our rock and our tower and our high place and all that. But he also um, shows what kind of God he is by things he's done in history. You know, I think again and again, the, the, the great exodus and the Red Sea crossing and all that, uh, God's name and his fame are just so clearly part of his motive there, that God made a name for himself by doing that, and a reputation. So uh, the name of God, you know, uh, we think about that in the, in the uh, Lord's Prayer. Um, our, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. The name uh, is the reputation of God. May God's reputation be held in honor. May it be set apart as holy in the minds of people. That's really what you're praying for. And that's really when the kingdom of God comes, when people set apart the name of God in their hearts as holy, sanctify it really in their minds, that God is a great God, a holy God. Uh, Bobbin gives us a list of descriptors from the Bible. I'm not going to read the, Bi- the references. You can get them right off the page here. But in the Bible, uh, God is spoken of as a lion, an eagle, a lamb, uh, a hen in Matthew 23, the sun. Uh, he didn't say shield, but that's in there also. The Lord is a sun and a shield. In Psalm 84, morning star, he is a light. Uh, The Lord is my light and my salvation there in Psalm 27. He's a torch, a consuming fire, uh, a fountain, a rock, a hiding place, a strong tower, a moth. I I didn't look look that one up. That's a new one. I I was going over that a moment ago and I'm not familiar with that. So go ahead and look it up and see how God is like a moth. But at any rate, a shadow... um, uh, the shadow of God's wings, it says there, a shield, a temple, many other things. So many different things. Now, if you look at that list of, of things, those are all very physical, aren't they? They're really just very much tied to the physical world we live in. Uh, and later in the outline, I'm going to talk about a quote from Ronnie Stevens in which, uh, uh, you know, I think meditating on, on um, you know, how, how the physical universe is a theater of God's glory. Uh, he said, some people think 
that God has given us the gospel in order to understand the world, but really it's the other way around. He's given us the world in order that we may understand the gospel and ultimately God. So we can see God by learning all of these things. And that's why, you know, when I wrote the book on sanctification and, and for the longest time it was, you know, knowledge, faith, character, action. It was just knowledge being biblical knowledge, factual knowledge. And it was clearly inadequate because the fact of the matter is the Bible itself is incomprehensible or apart from the physical world we live in. We are familiar with all of these things, lions and lambs and walls and fires and torches and all that by living. And we have experiences with them. And then God says, I'm like that in some way. Now, no one of these things captures everything God is. That's the whole problem with idolatry is when you make something and say, God is this. He isn't that. He's that plus all the other things he said he is. So it ends up being a nexus, a, a kind of a, a matrix of communications. Go ahead, Susan. Um, Psalm 19, break. verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, but apparently also lions, eagles, lambs, hands, sure. the sun, the morning star, etc. also declare the glory of God. Absolutely, they do. And so I like, you know, what it says here at the bottom is that all of these things have a cumulative effect on us to communicate what God is. No one of them is sufficient. No one of these names is sufficient. That's the way it is also with the gospel. There are a lot of different angles that the uh, epistles take on the gospel. There's a, a courtroom analogy and there's a marketplace analogy and there's a battlefield analogy. And, and all of these kind of come at us in different ways. Um, to help us understand what Jesus accomplished at the cross. No one of them is sufficient in and of itself. And so we get all of these things coming at us to, t to tell us what has happened. This is coming at us to tell us who God is. And he is all of these things in, in different ways, but no one of them. And so we see the Bible using what we call anthropomorphic language. That is speaking of God in human terms or in terms of creation that we know. The Bible gives us permission to do that in the way the Bible does. We're not to be innovators um, you know, in any way. But I think the Bible clearly, as we've seen, is, is saturated in this kind of anthropomorphic language. Um, and God does it all the time. Wayne Grudem says, all that Scripture says about God uses anthropomorphic language. That is language that speaks of God in human terms. Boving puts it this way, we have the right to anthropomorphize God because he himself theomorphized when he created man. So, you know... What a, what a statement there. But we are created in the image of God, I think is what he's getting at. And so therefore, you know, we would not say that God is like man. We are like God. And so that's where the anthropomorphic language uh, comes in. Uh, God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And so... You know, and, and I know that Isaiah says, you know, lampoons, idol makers who make idols of man in all his glory. That's that's great wickedness. OK, so we're not going to liken God to man in that way. So we make a statue of a man and say, this is this is what God is like. But we are like God. We were created and we are redeemed to be like God. And so that's how God uses these kinds of things. But again, I want you to keep that idea in mind. Cumulative effect. Don't focus in on just one of those things. Take all of what the scripture says about God and let it all have an effect. And, and in that cumulative effect, then you know who God is. Not any one. You take one of them and you go too far, you become a heretic, really. Because almost every heresy takes something that's true and pushes it too far. And so there's a network of truths here that keep us constrained and in a proper place in the doctrine of God. And it's really quite beautiful. I will say the reality will be better. We're seeing through a glass darkly tonight, friends. We're reading a bunch of words. And seeing God ourselves and experiencing that beatific vision, that being in the presence of God will be infinitely better than 
studying sheets stapled with a staple or something like that. This is better than not coming tonight, okay? I think it's good that you came. But, you know, even better is to see face to face. Okay, so the Bible speaks of human roles ascribed to God. God is called in some cases a bridegroom, a husband, a father. These are different verses you can look up. A judge and a king, a warrior. He's a builder and a maker, a shepherd, physician. There's so many of them. And again, God isn't any one of these things, but he is all of these things at different times. The Bible also speaks of human actions ascribed to God, on God God's knowing, his remembering, his seeing, his hearing, smelling, tasting, sitting, rising, walking, wiping away tears, etc. You know, it's interesting, you meditate on this, you know, but God remembered Noah. Well, what was he doing before? Was he just preoccupied? You know, is he, that's just human language that... That's what it would be for us, where you turn your attention to something and deal with it, right? You remember, oh yeah, I wanted to, to make a phone call. Or I, you know, I hope to do such and such today and get it done. But God, being om- omniscient, never forgot Noah. It's just that basically that's an anthropomorphic way of saying God is now turning his attention to Noah and dealing with him. Let's not forget Noah. He's in a boat with all those animals and the world's covered with water. He needs some help. He's quite helpless. All right. I don't think there was a navigation system. All right. You know, he needs your help just to get out. All right. Of the boat. So at any rate, God remember Noah. So all of these are just verbs that speak of things that God does. The Bible also speaks of human emotions ascribed to God, such as joy, grief, anger, uh, love, hatred, wrath. God is a very emotional being, a very passionate being. Uh, Bible speaks of body parts ascribed to God, uh, God's activities, many of them. Uh, God's face. Um, you know, it speaks of Moses seeing God, uh, or I speak to, to him face to face. You know, that's, that's what, uh, how he communicated with Moses. It speaks of God's eyes or his eyelids, his ears, his nose, mouth, lips, tongue, neck, arms, hand, his finger. Uh, this is the finger of the Lord, they said uh, in Exodus 8.19. Fingers, plural, in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens the work of his fingers, I think that's amazing. You know, you think of fingers as in terms of precise, smaller work, hands in terms of something bigger, but God there, with the, it's amazing when you think about it. The foot. Now, the key to understanding all of these body parts is to understand that the human body itself is created in the image of God, as part of the image of God. So, God assigns to certain organs or cells the function of hand or foot or mouth. But God had the prototype in himself first, without needing the cells. Do you understand what I'm saying? He doesn't need an ear to hear. He doesn't need an eardrum, let's say, for example. Uh, Look at the verse at the bottom, uh, Psalm 94, 9. Does he who implanted the ear not hear? And does he who formed the eye not see? So he was able to see before he created an eye. All right? He's able to hear before there was ever an ear. And so he is able to do these things without needing a body. How? I have no idea. I don't have any idea. I I also think that gives us some insights into some things God can do in our bodies, circumventing ordinary biological, you know, like, like take Pentecost, for example. How is it that everyone in the crowd heard one message given, each of them hearing in their own native language? How could that be? So he's just kind of intervening between the eardrum and the brain to just put in like they were hearing their native language. He just kind of, you know, I don't know what he did. (laughs) I don't have any idea. Or how they heard the sound of a rushing wind that day, but there was no movement of air that we could see, just the sound. 
And, and so how does God do sound without moving any moving air? Um, but he can do that. And so in the same way, God doesn't need a hand in order to do what a hand does. He doesn't need an eye in order to see. And you know from Psalm 139, even the darkness is his light to you. He doesn't need light in order to see. So that's, but we are creating the image of God and God has assigned these functions to organs at this present time. Okay, so all of this is just that anthropomorphic language. God is spirit. We'll get to that later, God willing, later. Uh, this evening, uh, John 4:24. He's not made up of matter. He doesn't have these things. He doesn't have. And I'll tell you, it's just it's just sad, really, to see unbelievers mocking and ridiculing biblical language when it's anthropomorphic, uh, as though it's somehow mythological. You know, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and all that kind of thing. It's just so obvious that the Bible is mythological at this point or whatever. They don't know what they're talking about. It's far more complicated than that. The fact is that God is able to sound like He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, etc without having a body. He doesn't have a body. But he's able to present himself in that, in that sort of way as he chooses. And so I've already given that quote about the theater of his glory. So basically, you know, you look around the world and with, with the beautiful, the perfect help of the scriptures, you're able to look at the world and see how it shows you God. And God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen being understood from what has been made, Romans chapter 1. But especially for us, who are Christians. We have the indwelling spirit and we can interpret physical creation better than they can. So we can look and see the beauty and the glory of God in creation now. So that's just the names and the anthropomorphic language and all that. Let's get to some of these attributes, uh, what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. We made that distinction last week between the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable are those things that uh, really pertain to God and God alone. They're nothing that he has invested in the image of God. They're not in us. They can't be in us. They don't belong to us. They belong to him. They are his and his alone, those attributes. They are God-like attributes. The communicable attributes are those things that have a reflection in, the, in, in humanity so that God is love and we can also be loving. You know, God uh, has wrath and we also can have righteous anger against sin, you know, etc. There are a number of, inc of communicable attributes and we'll get to those in due time. But let's start with this category of the incommunicable attributes of God. And let's start with this one, which is a great place to start, and that is God's self-existence. Uh, aseity uh, is another word for it. The fact that God had no creator, he has no beginning, um, he always has existed. And so um, I'm actually writing a little booklet for the Gospel Coalition on Creation, and that's how I'm going to start. I'm going to start by saying um, that there are two categories into which everything in the universe, uh, visible and invisible, can fit. Those things that are created and those that aren't. <laughs> and there's only one thing in the uncreated category, and that's God. Everything else. And I want it that way. I want there to be this big, in your mind, separation between God and the creation. There's just an infinite, in this sense, an infinite gap between God and the rest. All right? Uh, God doesn't need anything from us or from creation to exist. He existed before there was uh, a creation. So that's what it means. Definition, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. And yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. This is the way that Grudem is giving these definitions. He wants to temper them a bit. And so we, we shouldn't misunderstand these attributes. We shouldn't misunderstand that God doesn't care about us, doesn't love us, or doesn't assign us with tasks or roles, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but what it just means here is that he doesn't need us for his existence. Do we need him for our existence? 
Let me ask you another question. You all know the answer to that. Of course, we need him. Let me ask you another question, a little bit deeper. Do you think that you underestimate practically day to day how much you need him to continue to exist? I think you do. And I think I do too. I think we just kind of go about our business and forget, oh yes, in him I live and move and have my being. If God didn't will, I wouldn't be here right now. You know, and that's, I think that's something we need to keep reminding ourselves. I exist right now because of the pleasure of God. I exist because God has chosen to allow me to continue to exist. And that's, I think that's just valuable. But God is completely unlike that. He exists because he exists. All right. So God has no needs. He doesn't need to be created. He doesn't need to be sustained. Uh, He is the I am. That's what he says in Exodus 3, 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. By the way, on the I am, it just, you know, I think it's intentionally difficult for us to understand it grammatically. You know, when Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. You know, a thousand years ago, I am. Well, you, you mean I was. Well, that too. And there's nothing wrong with saying that because in Revelation it says who was and is and is to come. But the thing is, he just kind of wants to force us to kind of be almost thrown back a bit or stunned. God always is the I am, always. And so that just means he never changes. It's just that existence and he doesn't need anything in order to exist. Before the mountains were born, uh, you are God, not just you were God, but he's always the same. Okay. So God needs nothing from us as though if he didn't get it, he'd be weakened. You know, like the city of Rome needing the grain shipments from Alexandria, Egypt. All right. And without that, the populace is going to starve. So we need to keep that that flow going from the uh, from the Nile River and from the wheat fields or else the city of mighty Rome is going to is going to get weak. Well, that's true. Because it's made up of human beings. That's the feet of clay. That's the whole point. We are feeble and weak and we need to be sustained. Something has to keep coming our way. Or like the Berlin airlift. You remember when the, when the uh, Russians surrounded and the Germans, East Germans surrounded Berlin and, and Truman flew in all those airplanes, right? Why did he do that? Because the populace needed the sustenance. They were trying to uh, get rid of that Western enclave there in Eastern Germany. It uh, didn't work because of the airplanes, and they were unwilling to shoot the airplanes down and start World War III. Good thing. All right, so they just let the airplanes go in, and then they finally gave up. The, the point is the city needed to be sustained. There had to be a constant flow of resources. And so it is with you. You need that, don't you? You need a constant flow of resources. God doesn't need anything like that. Nothing needs to go toward him to keep him going. Not at all. So Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So that's a a key qualifier. He is served by human hands. Absolutely. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, etc. We want to serve God. That's what we want to do with our day. I want to serve God today. There's nothing wrong with that. We should desire that. But you should understand about that service that God doesn't need it. I hope that doesn't insult you. It doesn't insult me. I just know it's true. Psalm 50 tells us that. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Just meditate on that. I mean, especially I wouldn't tell you. I I, I like saying that to myself. If I were hungry, I especially wouldn't be telling you. All right. God is just putting us in our place when he says that. But I'm not hungry. But even if I were, I wouldn't be telling you. Okay, (laughs) I own everything there is. All of it is mine already. That's what he's saying there. So he isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
It's not like that. He is served by human hands because of his grace to us. Paul looked at his ministry as grace from God. It's grace that God gives us to give us a role to play. I think that's a marvelous thing, but that's a good thing to meditate. Uh, in Job 41.11, God says this, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? By the way, it's a key concept when it comes to salvation. Romans chapter 4 says, If, if we were justified by works, all right, uh, when a man works, it says, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation, right? However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So one of them is a mercantile kind of thing where you stand before God and give him whatever price he's demanding and then have you haven't given the price, he then owes you salvation. But he says here in Job 41.11, who has a claim against me that I must pay? No one is the implication, no one. And so he says, everything under heaven belongs to me. Isn't that marvelous? I, I just, I love these verses. They're just so powerful. So God will never owe you anything ever. Now, that's not to say he doesn't bind himself by promises. And when he's made promises, he will fulfill those promises. He does that. But he was free before he made that promise. And the binding is internal. It's something that he has chosen to do because he is truthful and will keep his promise. And we don't, it's no honor to God to say, well, who knows? He's sovereign. He might break his promise. Well, that's not honoring to God. He won't break his promise ever. He keeps his promises. All I'm saying is that in an absolute sense, apart from all of that, he doesn't owe us anything. Everything in the universe is his. That's what he's saying. All right. Uh, uh, Romans 11 says it as well. 35 and 36. Uh, who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So I write here, be especially leery of Christian sermons or songs that speak of God needing us to worship him, to serve him, to lead the lost, to be his hands and feet in the world, that kind of thing. God doesn't need us to be his hands and feet in the world. He did find creating the world without us. Keep that in mind, all right? You know, he, you know, God does nothing except for as an answer to prayer. Well, he does that at least, creation, right? Heaven and earth, six days and all that. You know, God can do an awful lot of things without us being involved. However, again, understand, by grace, we can be in some sense his hands and his feet. We are the body of Christ. But that's just a privilege. That's grace. Do you see the difference? He doesn't need it done. So I, I love uh, to, to think of it that way. All right, God has no needs. He will never have any needs. He chooses to work in this or that way to reveal His glory in a specific manner. He has no needs. However, we are very different, aren't we? And God designed a universe. I mean, he, I'm not even just talking about the sentient beings, humans and angels. But He created everything dependent on Him. I mean, the atoms themselves depend on Him. He must continue to act toward them for them to continue to exist. He created a dependent, needy universe. And as Jonathan Edwards put it this way in a great sermon titled, God glorified in man's dependence. God is really glorified in the universe's dependence, in creation's dependence. Does Satan depend on God for his continued existence? Why would he be accepted? <laughs> of course he does. Now, you might ask, all right, then God. But then we start to get a little bit arrogant and think we'd do it better than God. If God had wanted to will Satan out of existence, he would have done it long ago. He clearly doesn't want to will Satan out of existence. He wants Satan to continue in existence and to continue with some power and ability to make our lives wretched and miserable. That's just his nature. Of course, you know he will judge him for it. But at the same time, I just want you to know they are just absolutely incomparable when it comes to power and sovereignty and all that. Yes, go ahead. I was just thinking, 
Suzuki that talks about the scientific view of everything that has holds that everything will degenerate into disorder. But unfortunately, they don't go far enough. They don't realize that it would all degenerate into disorder in an instant. Rather in an than instant, yeah. Generate into it, it would become that. Immediately, instantly. Yeah. And that's where you get the trouble with providence and with all of that doctrine and the problem of evil in the world. It's far more intense than we can imagine. You know, God didn't just permit the earthquake. God brought the earthquake. That's the scriptural language. You know, and God also brings all the healing and all the ministry that comes after the earthquake. It's just God is not like us. He's just so higher, much higher than we are. You know what I think when I look at earthquakes and suffering and misery and then Christian ministry that happens after? You know, I, I think, boy, sin must be an unbelievably difficult problem if it takes all of this to deal with it. Think about redemptive history. This isn't the first earthquake, friends. It's not the first time tens, even hundreds of thousands of people have died in a tragedy. All right, God has been doing this. And if you want to imagine real tragedy, just read about it in the book of Revelation when a third of population is swept away by this or that plague. So horrible times are yet to come. But I just think all of it, in my understanding of redemptive history, is dealing with the sin problem. That's what it is. This is all about sin, God's redemptive plan and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. It must be a devastatingly tough problem if it takes all of this to deal with it. And it is. So that's the way I look at it. It's a very sad thing. Uh, but in the end, we should still rejoice and know that God is sovereign. But don't, you know, just learn to speak like the Bible does, you know. You know, do I not form the light and, and bring the darkness? Do I, do I not create prosperity and bring disaster? I, the Lord, do all these things. That's what the Bible says. And if you think, well, I, I just can't believe in a God like that, then you're worshiping an idol. That's not the God of the Bible. He does those things. And he, he says, I have wounded and I will bind up and heal. He does both. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, thank you, Landis, for sharing that because I do believe that the problem of evil or of suffering, especially human suffering in the world, has been the number one portal of heresies into the into the life of the church. People look at that and they start messing with doctrine because they can't handle the idea that God forms the light and brings darkness. He brings prosperity and creates disaster. They don't like that. And so they're like, well, I don't understand that. I wouldn't do that. So they start to become heretics. They craft new doctrines. Yeah. So if a reporter from the News and Observer or something calls you and says, tomorrow... I will not talk to her. Yeah, no, you can, I will not talk to her. Okay? Okay. <laughs> caused this earthquake? You would say God caused the earthquake. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean, God is holding the rocks together, isn't he? So my I mean, question is, absolutely. to do, you say this to an unbeliever as well as to us, who well, I hope understand it in a... I will say this, and I'm not specifically applying it to any one individual, but Jesus did say, do not cast your pearls before swine. You have to have a sense of what somebody can handle. And if, there, if it's not a forum or an... That's why I won't talk to the person. I'll talk to the individual personally, but not as a reporter who's calling and will twist my words, and then I end up serving Satan. Uh, because I have no control over how the article is written. That's why I don't, I don't answer. How did you know that that actually literally happened? All right, um, Because that did happen. But at any rate, the, the fact of the matter is, the, if, if we have time, and I, if I sense an openness and an eagerness to really know the truth, then I'll say, absolutely. God it was holding and is holding the rocks on which Haiti is built together. And so, yeah. And I, I think if we can't handle... You know, if we can't handle what's happened in Haiti, how can we handle what's yet to come? Read about it in Revelation. This is nothing. It's small 
compared to a third of the population of the earth, what would that be by then? Maybe between two or three billion people in a single day, let's say, in a single plague, dying. It's a, you know, it's a terrible thing yet to come. So let's keep going. But again, I, the alternatives for me are so much worse. I can't imagine a universe in which God says, you know, there's just nothing I can do about earthquakes. I mean, I keep trying. I mean, we're working on it. We have our best angels on it right now. We just, you know, that earthquake problem just keeps popping up. And there's just not much we can do. I, can't, I just don't even, I can't imagine a universe like that. Now, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'll be there and I'll love you. And I'll, I'll get you through it. You know, like he's the Red Cross or something like that. You know, God isn't the Red Cross. He's infinitely better than that. So I probably should be careful and just keep going because I'll probably end up a heretic if I keep going like this. So let's just... <laughs> So all creatures are totally dependent on God for their existence. Psalm 104 says, These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. You have to read the whole psalm to know what he's talking about. But it's just all the different animals and people. Uh, they just look to God to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. Look at this. When you take a bre- away their breath, they die. I don't know if it could be any plainer. When God says you die, then you die. And, and if anyone should say God doesn't have that right, well, what does the word right mean? He of Anyone has the right. He's the one that gave us our breath. And he has the right to take it away. And so, you know, that's the whole thing. To me, the beauty of it is, you know, the, that, uh, that the Lord is intending to give us eternal life through Christ. And, and this world, this world of suffering isn't all there is. You know, there's another one yet to come. All right, Acts 17, we've already quoted, He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. Two things now. By Your will they were created, and by Your will they continue to have their, have their being. So Jonathan Edwards, I think, speculated a little too much when he posited a continual creation by the will of God. But I understand what he was getting at. It's a continual decision by God to keep the original creation going in that pattern. And I understand what he's getting at. Um, I just think we have to be careful about speculation. But I, I think, in effect, providentially, that's what happened. By God's will, we were created and have our being still. That's, I think, how it works. All right? Yet God can and does receive pleasure and glory from His creation. For all of the you know, self-existence of God and all of these, this infinite separation, He still enjoys us. He loves us. We can bring Him pleasure. We can find out what pleases the Lord. And that's not an empty set. There actually are many things that we do that please Him and bring Him pleasure. Okay? Psalm 104 at the end says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Isn't that beautiful? May God rejoice in His works. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Beautiful. And then Isaiah 43.7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God receives pleasure and joy and glory from us. Beautiful thing. And God can and does delegate certain responsibilities uh, to his created beings. I mean, that's a key key element of our understanding of the universe, that God assigns roles to beings who then carry out those roles. You know, archangels with certain authority. Satan had a certain authority. He's, you know, the rulers and authorities and powers. That's why Paul uses that language. 
I mean, that's, it's very tough when you read the book of Jude and Second Peter about the whole thing when the archangel Michael wouldn't dispute with, with Satan, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. What, what both Jude and, 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 and Peter are getting at is that, that the false teachers are bold and arrogant and slander authority. They slander uh, celestial beings, probably Satan. And they ought not to. They don't understand how God has set up this hierarchy of authority structures. Very much so. The centurion understood it. Remember, he said, you don't need to come under. Just give the word. You're the emperor. You don't need to come. I mean, I don't have to go and see that my soldiers did what I told them to do. And so you're even higher on the chain than I am. Just give the word. And he says, right you are. That's exactly what the invisible world is like. A concentric circle with me at the center. I am the king. And so he just, you know. Other times he just did that. Like in John chapter 4, when he didn't want to go to the royal officials, he just said, go, he's going to be healed. And I don't think that man had the same faith as the centurion, but Jesus just healed him without the faith. You know. He wasn't arrogant. Yeah, he wasn't presumptive about authority. Yeah, he just said, "The Lord rebuke you." And and we get that. You get it in Zechariah three. The Lord rebuke. The Lord's going to rebuke you. Satan knows his time is short. He's filled with rage, and so it's kind of like an application in the heavenly realms of vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Just step out of the way. Michael, in effect, was saying, "Look, I don't need to deal with you. I'm here to get Moses' body. See you later. Have a good day." The, you know, the Lord will deal with you, and He will. And Michael knew that. It's like I don't need to do a thing. By the way, Michael already beat Satan anyway. Read about it in Revelation 12. You know, he and his, his armies already cast Satan out of heaven. So the fact of the matter is it's authority itself that Jude and Second Peter are dealing with there. But uh, moving on, God has the ultimate authority and he does delegate authority to created beings. It's, a, it's an important thing, like giving us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, self-existence. Any questions about that? One of 28 attributes. At this pace, dear friends, at this pace. Oh, well. Second attribute. I have one, sorry, I have one question about yeah. God's self-existence. So yeah. You kind of touched on this, and then glossed over the note of 4.5. Mm-hmm. This means that God can, and that can will out of existence any one of his creatures at any time he chooses. Sure. And no one's a question. Um, I guess the question that I have is, if we understand ourselves to have a future, uh, an eternal future, right. either with God or sure. separated from God, mm-hmm. um, not, not the question of could God wills out of existence, right. but has He indeed created us so that we aren't, so that we are in fact eternal, or is He going to, or are you saying that we continue to exist yeah. because of His, because of His? I just uh, don't believe in any anything in the universe that exists separate from God. It just it just doesn't. It's not like God cut it free, set it loose. You know, uh, it continues to have its being, Revelation 4.11, because God wills it to. Now, when I said God could at any moment, I do think I, I qualified that with unless he's made a promise. See, once God promises certain things, then he's bound by that. And, he's, and just his own nature is such that he will not lie and he's promised something, he's going to keep it. And, and frankly, our whole salvation is based on, on us trusting God to keep his promises. We're justified by faith in a promise. You get a promise, you believe it, and, God, God, and he will do that. What I am saying, however, is just absent a promise or God binding, he can do anything because he, everything exists and, and lives and moves for his purpose and his glory. That's all. Pretty much. Or is the non-existence of a soul something that, that, yeah. is, a that is a possibility? No. 
No, pretty much he, he has, because if you read the, the, you know, the accounts of uh, heaven and hell and judgment day and all that, you just know that souls are, are eternal because God will continue to will them, which really, by the way, gives you a real insight into hell because God is continuing to will the existence of those souls in hell. And that's something you and I would never do. We'd be like, all right, enough's enough. We would all kind of head toward annihilationism or, or purgatory where they eventually get saved, right? It's like, okay, you had 100,000 years. Is that enough? Now I'm, I'm, we're going to bring the evangelist in. And boy, I'll tell you, what a revival in hell, all right? After 100,000 years of hell, um, it's not God's way. And, and it's not for us to say, boy, I would do it better. You can't do it better. It, it's impossible for you to conceive a better universe than God has. He knows what he's doing. And so it's arrogant to think, I could, I could come up with a better way than God. No, you can't. And you ought to repent from even thinking it. All right. So, but God, I do believe you're right. I think that uh, there are enough scriptures that give us indication that souls will last forever, but only because because God is going to continue to will them. He's going to continue to sustain them wherever they are, heaven and hell. Yes. Okay, this is kind of playful, but I was thinking of um, Mary when she asked the question of Gabriel, "How can this be, mm-hmm. being that I'm a virgin?" She asked the question too small. Mm-hmm. If she would have just asked, "How can this be?" Seeing as how God is eternal, He mm. can come into the flesh. If she would have just asked, we would have gotten the explanation. But she didn't know. think of it. Well, she's a thinker, though. You heard my sermon a few weeks ago, and you know she was pondering. There's a lot to ponder, and um, I think there'll be a lot for us to think about forever. So those those things, and even if she had thought of that question and had asked, I don't know that we have so many answers, Susan, in the Bible, don't we? Yeah, I mean, we, we have 66 books of answers. Yeah, we have so much information to go on, and it's really wonderful to contemplate. Let's keep going. Let's talk about God's immutability. And I want to just say here, thanks be to God that we are not immutable. I want to change. I don't want to stay like this. You know, I want to be different. I want to, I want to spend eternity in a different body and with a different heart. Don't you? Because I don't think I can enjoy heaven the way I'm presently set up. I'd get bored with it, I think. I need to be transformed, you know. I, to my shame, I say that I sometimes get bored with God and the things of God and the Scriptures because I still have that indwelling flesh. I want to be freed from that. I want to be liberated. And the creation itself needs to be liberated. But God doesn't need to be liberated from anything. He doesn't need to improve. He doesn't need to grow or change. He's perfect now and always has been. And that's an incredible thing when you think about it, the immutability of God. What's the definition? God is unchanging in His being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet, God does act and feel emotions and He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. And I must say, therein lies a certain amount of mystery. That's where you start getting God's repentance language and that kind of thing where God seems to respond to the Ninevites you know, as they repent and it's like He relents from sending the calamity, etc. It's a mystery. But we can't imagine that God was surprised. It's like, I never imagined they'd repent. Well then, you know... Um, even Jonah saw it coming. <laughs> He's like, I know what's, I, we all know what's going to happen here. You know, they're going to repent and you're going to forgive them. You know, much to my chagrin. You know, I wish you would just wipe them out. That was Jonah's attitude. But the fact of the matter is God knew exactly what was going to happen ahead of time. But still in some mysterious way, he does, he does respond to us in space and time. I've wondered about that before. I've thought about certain specific days I've had in which I was really good for one part of the day and really bad for the other part of the day. And in the first part of the day, I really felt, felt and sensed the pleasure of God. And it's like, boy, you never saw that coming, did you, God, that I was going to do that at three in the afternoon? Or else you wouldn't have been so nice to me in the morning. 
you know, I really do believe that God dealt with me in space and time. I hadn't sinned yet at that point and he was pleased with me and there was a testimony of the spirit in my heart that he was pleased with me and I was enjoying that sense of his pleasure. And then when I sinned, I was not enjoying the sense of his pleasure. I was starting to feel a, a bit of a separation and some fatherly discipline. So what I'm saying is it's a mystery to me how God can deal with us that way in space and time. By the way, I've wondered before about how God accepts certain praises that we give when we lack the full information and God really hadn't done the thing we thought and yet he accepts the praise. I've often wondered about that before. Like you remember when I was trying to fix our Toyota sunroof? You remember that? We had this demon-possessed sunroof, all right? I'll never forget this. The thing would just open on its own, which is, you know, fine on a sunny day, but uh, really, really bad on a rainy day, all right? And finally, I had had it. I, I didn't care anymore for the, for the attribute of the sunroof. I wanted it gone. And so I was going to, I was going to give it a, a sunroof lobotomy or whatever. I was, you know, I was going to lobotomize our capabilities. And it was not easy to do. I'll never forget that. Because I had to reach my hand way back, inches deep into this thin little area without destroying the roof on the inside of our Toyota and find some wires and pull them out. And it was very difficult. And I snipped these two wires and that was that. I, by the way, I had to do it when the demon or whatever got the whim to close it. It's like, all right, go for it. Because I didn't want it frozen in the open position. So I, I finally, I waited for days and finally it closed. And then I went for it. And I was so thrilled. And I was praising God and giving thanks to him. All right. And later that afternoon, you know, and uh, I had snipped the wrong wires, whatever, but or it was truly demon possessed. I'm not sure which, but, you know, and I remember thinking distinctly, God, what did you do with that praise that I sent your way? You know, because I was really happy. You know, did you receive that? Did, did you, you know, is that real genuine worship? Because you hadn't done it yet. It still wasn't fixed. So I find that interesting. But God actually deals with us mysteriously in space and time, all right? We can talk about God's timelessness or his eternity at another moment, but uh, the fact is he knows exactly the end from the beginning and yet mysteriously does deals with us in time. But let's talk about God's immutability, the fact that he never changes. All right, Psalm 102 says this, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. So here, do you see what God's doing here? He is contrasting himself to the physical creation, the heavens and the earth. They might seem unchanging. I mean, the stars. The earth itself, apart from, you know, an earthquake, generally we just think of it as kind of an unchanging thing. It's still here, you know. Um, but, but they are very changeful compared to God. That's what Psalm 102 is saying. They will change, but God remains. They're going to wear out like a garment uh, and he's going to roll them up and throw them away or discard them like a garment, he says. But, but God remains the same. That's the immutability of God. He never, never changes. And then he just says it in Malachi 3, 6. Uh, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. In other words, the reason God didn't destroy you this week for your sin is that he doesn't change. And we change. We're very changeful. We go up and down in our affections and all that. God hasn't changed in his saving intention to you in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's why you're not destroyed. And so the immutability of God is the, the foundation of your assurance and your, your confidence in this world. He'll never change. 
And he has, he has spoken a word concerning your soul in Christ. And that's beautiful. Again, James 1.17, every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So there's not even a hint of change with God. Never. God's purposes also never changes. Uh, never change. Sorry, they never change. And he accomplishes what he sets out to do. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. So God, using very human language, he keeps his eye on the ball. He never forgets what he's about. You know, he knows what he's about. And the ultimate end of what he's about is his own glory. He never has forgotten that. He never loses sight of that. That's what he's doing. So he does everything for his own glory. But he also has subservient purposes that fit together like a complex clock or something like that to achieve his ultimate end. And he's going to achieve those too. I will achieve all that I purpose and plan. So his subplans, his lesser plans, in this case, it has to do with the military conquest, a bird of prey coming from the east, uh, basically to, to put an end to Babylon is what it is. The bird of prey is Cyrus, I believe. And so he brings Cyrus, the Persians, to come and destroy Babylon. And he says, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to achieve it. And there's nothing that can stop it. I will achieve all that I plan. So he never changes. Uh, Bobbing put it this way. The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the di uh, difference between the creature or the creator and the creature. Every creature is constantly becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, finds this rest in God, in him alone. For he, only he, is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Okay? Well, there are questions, aren't there? I mean, there are questions. Practically, we'll get to open theism in a moment, but practically for me, the, the toughest aspect of this immutability has to do with prayer for me. All right? What's all that about? I mean... You're immutable. God's, your purposes never change. Well, then why am I, why am I praying? You know, and that's, and, and it's easy to say it's part of my sanctification and that's enough. That should be enough. But the other half, namely, does it actually do anything? I mean, like if I didn't pray, this wouldn't happen. I mean, how do I get my brain around that? Does it actually accomplish anything? And the Bible reveals that it does. I just think it's a mystery. I think God is immutable and we could just say that God ordained that you pray. And he's factored that in in some mysterious way. I don't know what to say about it. It isn't just that you get changed because you pray. So for me, this is mystery, and I can't answer your question, brother, but I'll go ahead and take a <laughs> shot. <laughs> Have you ever had an afternoon that you set aside to be completely open, um, and, and at the end of the afternoon, was your intention fulfilled? Was your purpose fulfilled? Sure. Even though you didn't dictate any of the events of the afternoon. In other words, the purpose of your afternoon was for other people to dictate to you what you were going to do. Your son come and say, let's go play catch sure. or whatever. I wonder if God's <clears throat> immutability is it like that in certain respects at certain times. If he doesn't allow us to play into what he's doing through prayer and whatnot in a similar way. Maybe, I don't know. 
I, I just think it's it's very tough for me to to wrap my mind around it. Okay, because analogies that really give you a flash of insight and all that. If you can turn them into a really compelling novel, they'll be bestsellers in the New York Times list, but they're probably heretical, you know, if you go too far with them because they really kind of help us understand these kind of things. God doesn't really finally explain these things. He just tells us he never changes. He's got everything figured out from the end and that we need to pray and that prayer is powerful and effective. Okay, that's enough for me. It has an effect. And I don't really know how that works. Now, let's talk for a moment about open theism, which is a heresy. Um, you know, people talk about hyper-Calvinism and there is such a thing. This is hyper-Arminianism is what it is. It's, it's basically the free will of man run amok. The God will not, actually, let's go beyond it. He cannot know any decision made by a free will agent before it happens. He can't. He doesn't know it. And so, um, you know, God is constantly changing his mind and, and, and changing his plans. And it's just that he is so, has so many resources available to him that he's got it covered. You know, if this happens, this, he can do this. If that happens, he, he's just very nimble, I guess, in that regard. And is able to handle whatever comes his way from six billion people. All right. And he's just able to, to do that. But he doesn't know. And, and the logic from these theologians goes, how can he know? Because if he could know, then they wouldn't really be free decisions. That's how they, how they reason. And so that's, that's where open theism, the, the, the plans of God, the purposes of God are open. And, and he doesn't really know the end from the beginning. Can you not see what a heresy this is? How clearly it contradicts statements from the book of Isaiah and other places in which he says he does know the end from the beginning? Um, and more than that, he just knows it, that he actually ordains it and that it's his plan. I will bring about my purposes and what I have purposed will stand. That's what he says. Well, there are certain passages that it seems that God changes his mind. Like you remember how Moses interceded. You remember how God said, leave me alone and I'm going to destroy the whole nation and I'll make of you a great nation. Now, let me ask you a question. Just in terms of omnipotence, is God capable, was God capable of doing that? making of Moses a great nation. Look, he already did it once with Abraham, right? He could do it with Moses. didn't matter how old Moses was. That wasn't the problem. What was the problem? He had made promises, prophetic statements about each of the 12 tribes of Israel at the end of the book of Genesis, especially about Judah, right? Because the scepter is coming and the, the tribe of Judah is going to produce a king, all right? So well, then what was he saying that? <laughs> you know, what was he saying that to Moses for? Leave me alone so that I can destroy the nation and all that. Well, you could say that's just part of his testing or his relationship and all that. But he doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. He's really just working with Moses and giving us a sense of just how incensed he was with the Jewish nation. I mean, incredibly incensed. And had every right to be, of course, we could use that language, but he had spoken to, God, to, that, he had spoken to that nation with his own voice out of a cloud and fire on Mount Sinai, you shall make no idols or representations of God. And this is what they did with the golden calf. It was a big sin, not a little one, right at the beginning of their relationship after all that God had done in Egypt to bring them out. And all the promises he was making, he was going to bring them into the promised land. So it was not a small thing and he was incensed at them. But it was also important for Moses to write down how incensed God was because this would be a regular repeated pattern for Israel. I mean, how big an issue was idolatry for Israel anyway? Is that an issue for them at all? And, you know, one, one thing I've noticed is, okay, 
Idolatry is really, really big in the Old Testament. Thank goodness we've been delivered from it, right? We don't have to worry. No, I actually have started to realize it's the issue of the human race. It really just is. And idolatry is setting your affection on anything above God, any created thing above God, whether you make a physical representation of it or not. But the long story short is that, that, that open theism really has no traction in that in- encounter with Moses. God already knew what he was doing with Israel. He already knew all of Israel's history uh, before it even happened. Uh, another is Hezekiah at, having 15 years added to his life. You know, set your house in order, you're going to die, you'll not recover. Remember how he said that? And then Hezekiah, you know, cries, and turns his face to the wall and just blubbers a, a little bit. And I, I think we all feel that it would have been better if he had just gone ahead and died because during that time Manasseh was born and all kinds of bad stuff happened. Remember, the envoys came from Babylon and he showed them everything in the treasury. And, you know, just not a great 15 years. Um, but at any rate, we do know that God added 15 years to his life, all right? So again, it seems as though God has changed his mind. Um, same thing with Nineveh I already mentioned. He repented, so to speak, from creating people and making Saul king, etc. Interesting in the whole First Samuel thing about God repenting, it's interesting how it says that, I, you know, I am sorry that I made Saul king. But he says in another place in that exact same chapter, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. God doesn't repent like humans. And that's the key. It's the same thing as the earlier statement I made when it says he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He is served by human hands, but it's not as if he needed anything. And so God repents, but not like us. Okay? How, how or why do we repent? What causes us to repent? Okay, we have done wrong. Okay. What causes us... Go ahead. Don't like the consequences. Let, let me use a less kind of powerful word. What causes you to change your mind? Okay, well, that's repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts you. But what? let's say there's no sin involved. Let's just say it's a change of plans. New information. Okay, what's the problem when it comes to God? There is no new information with God. Think of this. Meditate on this. God has never learned anything and He never will. He has never learned anything. So if God has never learned anything, then He can't change His mind like you and I do. He's got no new information. He's not working with a new set of facts now. He already already had that set of facts. Go ahead, Susan. Here's a suggestion on how we could think about the God changing his mind issue. In the same way that we don't think of him as literally having hands and feet and little fingers and arms, mm-hmm. we are not to think of him literally as changing his mind. Right. Maybe the bigger idea is that he's telling us, hey, I, can, I could have done anything. Right. I can do anything. Right. But it's a, it's a not a literal, don't try to understand it too literally any more than we try to understand literally, mm-hmm. you know, anything else about it. Yeah, I think we need to take all these into consideration. What happened with Saul? We need to consider that. You know, if you had done this, I would have established your kingdom, but you didn't. This is what you acted. Now this is what it's going to be. Our lives can change radically if we do something really stupid and sin. You know, I think we ought to learn the lesson and not do the stupid things Saul did. Okay? And not be presumptive on God, but, but live holy, upright lives and, and not have to have that kind of thing. But let's also keep in mind, God has never learned anything and never will. There's no new set of information that ever comes to God, ever. I want to finish this point. I, just give me two more minutes and that way I get to a good stopping point on eternity. Um, let's remember, uh, we, can, we do not believe in a passionless God, okay? The impassive, impassive God, He doesn't exist. God is emotional. That means he's responding to stuff that's happening. You know, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So when it happens, then there's this emotion that comes forth 
concerning David. He is displeased with David and starts to put his hand heavy on him, Psalm 32, and start to do some things. Okay, so God is an emotional being. He delights in some things. He's grieved about other things. He does that. All right? Uh, we also have to reject something called process theology, which is that every day in every way, God's just getting better and better. And he's been at this an awfully long time, and so he's really good by now. But look how good he's going to be in another thousand years if the Lord doesn't return. And all the stuff that he's... He's just getting better and better. He's just learning. I mean, he just does things better now than back in the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob days. I mean, he's much better now. And, and he's going to even be even better. That's process theology. That's flat-out heresy. I mean, it's just as bad as open theism. It's just, I don't, what happens is people just, I feel like they just stop reading the Bible and they think, I have an idea. You know, here's a thought. You know, it's, the Bible clearly refutes some of these things. Clearly. So that's faulty. Part of the whole issue here is the fact that God is both infinite and personal. The imminence and transcendence of God. God is infinitely above you and he is just intimately with you. I mean, how, how do we get both of those? But it's so true, isn't it? That's the God of the Bible. Infinitely above, above you and intimately with you now. And you can call him Abba Father. And some heresies come or difficulties come when we confuse those things and don't keep them properly arranged, where we embrace one of them too much and forget the other one. The imminence too much and not the transcendence, or the transcendence too much and not the imminence. So we have to keep all of those together. So the importance of God's unchangeableness. Imagine what the universe would be like if God could change. In his person, suppose he could get better or if he could get worse. If God could get better, then he wasn't perfect a perfect being when we first trust him, trusted him. If worse, might he not keep changing from the worse and become eventually just completely evil? How could we spend eternity with a changeable God? In his purpose, how could we put our trust uh, in him if he changed his mind all the time and about what he intends to do? Aren't you glad God isn't like you? You know, I mean, he is not like you or, or like me. He's made a promise and he's going to keep it um, forever. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the things we've learned tonight uh, about you, the things that I really don't know that there was anything that was new tonight, Lord, but I know this, we forget or these images and senses get very dim in us and they need to be renewed and strengthened so that we realize just what a mighty and wonderful God you are. And teach us, O oh Lord, to hate sin, to hate wickedness and evil and turn away from it. Teach us to live holy and godly and upright lives. Teach us to live for your glory and to love you above all things. Please. And I pray that we'd feed our minds and our hearts on the Word of God so that we can know you above anything else, that we would yearn to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.